0: Rebels you're listening to a free audio only recording of my weekly Wednesday night show The Gun Show. However, this is the internet so you can listen whenever you feel like and also watch whenever you feel like. Tonight my guests, that's right, guests as in two, are Marco Navroginni and Barry Cooper. They're both political scientists who have co-written a new book titled COVID-19: The Politics of a Pandemic Moral Panic and it examines Canada's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and it traces the roots of the moral panic all the way back to the early days of the emerging virus in China. Now, if you like listening to the show, then I promise you're going to love watching it. But in order to watch, you need to be a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's what we call our premium, long-form TV-style shows here on Rebel News. Subscribers get access to my show, which, you know, I I obviously think is worth the price of admission alone. But you also get access to David Menzies' fun Friday night show Rebel Roundup as well as Ezra's nightly Ezra Levant show. Just go to rebelnews.com slash subscribe to become a member of Rebel News Plus. It's only 8 bucks a month. And just for my podcast listeners, you can save an extra 10% on a new Rebel News Plus membership by using the coupon code PODCAST when you subscribe. That's rebelnews.com slash subscribe to become a member and the coupon code is PODCAST. And if you like the show, and I'm pretty confident that you do, please leave a five-star review wherever you find us. That's a great way to support the show without having to spend a dime, but it also helps other people find the podcast too. Now, please enjoy this free audio only version of my show is it better to be overly cautious than not cautious enough now what if being too cautious ruined the economy stripped you of your civil liberties and caused catastrophic psychological fallout in your friends and neighbors. Yes, friends, tonight I'm discussing Canada's response to the COVID-19 pandemic with two political scientists who've written a brand new book on the topic. I'm Sheila gunn Reid, and you're watching The Gunn Show. book out. It's called COVID-19, The Politics of Pandemic Moral Panic, and it is out on Amazon as we speak. It's written by two of my fellow Albertans, Marco Navarrogini and Barry Cooper, in conjunction with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. Now, Navarrogini is the president and CEO of the Haltain Research Institute, and Barry Cooper is a longtime professor at the University of Calgary. And as I mentioned earlier, both men are political scientists and they joined together to write their new book that examines Canada's pandemic response from the very beginning. From the early days of a strange unknown virus emerging in Wuhan, China in late 2019 to today to the economic and social fallout of increased lockdowns and lockdowns after lockdowns driven by early federal inaction, moral panic, flawed modeling, and health bureaucrats with a, a taste for power. The gentleman joined me in an interview via Zoom to discuss the book, what inspired the book, and their predictions for the future. Check it out. Now our two political scientists. We've got Marco Gini. I didn't put any emphasis on any of the syllables there that are probably right, but that's okay. And Barry Cooper. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me and coming on to talk about your new book. Uh, it's called COVID-19, The Politics of Pandemic Moral Panic. Um, and I think this is truly the first real analysis of Canada's COVID response, both um, at the federal level, but also um, you've analyzed some of the responses at the provincial level. Why did you want to do this? And whichever one of you wants to answer, go ahead.
1: Marco, you go first. Thank you. Um, we, um, we had independently sort of commented on uh, issues related to the pandemic, Barry and I, uh, and then we noticed that we had uh, some, some overlaps. Uh, and, and so we decided to do this little uh, project together. But uh, the, the main thing, uh, really, that uh, the, the broad question that prompted uh, the, the work is that uh, we both had noticed that we have had pandemics uh, before, uh, and you know, in, in five in the last 100 and so years uh, since uh, the so-called Spanish um, Spanish flu, uh, but uh, nowhere. Ever had there been any full lockdown of entire societies? Uh, And so we started wondering, you know, why why is this and and why now? So the response really is what is new here and and not so much the fact that there are pandemics because we have had pandemics, um, many.
0: Barry, do you have anything to add?
1: Uh,
2: i would I would add only that um, that this is kind of a preliminary report, and that uh, there'll be later iterations as we sort of come to um, let's say more questionable policies by these various governments uh, and we also refine our understanding of of what uh, in, in at least from my point of view Marco um, may see things somewhat differently, but uh, the way the bureaucrats uh, have taken control uh, over politics um, and are attempting to terrify every Canadian so that they do exactly what uh, these—I um, mean, to be kind—these academic mediocrities uh, want us to do. Uh, and I think that that I think that's eventually where we're heading. It's a, its a—that's the novel uh, political part of of what I think we've discovered by looking at at uh, the government response to this. Uh, this uh, medical problem.
0: You know, and that's one of the questions I have on my list of things to discuss with you guys. Um, And we'll get to that in a second. But I mean, you really do a a historical analysis of how the pandemic began and the early handling of it, say, in December and January. For example, there are things that I think I'm a pretty close pandemic follower, um, but somehow this escaped me that January fourth, twenty twenty, the New York Times had reported that one hundred and seventy-five thousand people had left Wuhan in one day. I mean, there was a, a an outpouring of people from Wuhan in those early days. I think further on in your analysis, um, you know, you say that there had been millions of people who had left Wuhan for the Lunar New Year and at the same time world health organizations were a, the world health organization and their bureaucrats and to some extent canadians who are involved in that process were praising china for their handling of the pandemic
2: <laughs> yeah that's where you get into the very strange uh, kind of international politics of it uh i bet you um that there are people in uh in um the intelligence organizations in this country, as well as in the UK and the United States, that have a pretty clear idea of what was going on. Um, And they probably have uh, their own theories about what ties all this stuff together. Uh, But it's certainly clear, it was certainly clear by, say, uh, late February or March, that the relationship between the PRC and uh, the WHO was, um, let's say, not healthy. Uh, it was acting, the World Health Organization was acting basically as a mouthpiece uh, for uh, Communist China. Uh, and I mean, I, I, there's just a- absolutely no question of that, because you can document uh, their uh, twists and turns. Uh, but as to what was actually happening in China, uh, we're still pretty much in the dark about that. I, I figure, well, it'll eventually it'll come out. There'll be some uh, some uh, deep state guy will blab, and and of course the Chinese will deny it. But uh, the circumstantial evidence is is pretty compelling. Uh,
0: Marco, what role do you think this appeasement of communist China and let's just set aside the World Health Organization for a moment because I think we pretty know that they we pretty well know that they are infected with the virus of China sycophancy at the World Health Organization, but what role do you think um, this Chinese appeasement played uh, in the early decision-making of Trudeau's liberal government when it came to such things as, you know, closing the border, limiting incoming travelers, um, or for that matter, calling anybody who questioned the fact that the border was left wide open um, racist. What what role do you think that played in all of this
1: well we we have known for quite a while that uh, our prime minister is is an admirer of the people's uh, republic uh, and their uh, as he put it their basic uh, style of dictatorship uh they they get things done and, and he's a great admirer of that um i think at the at the very beginning uh, there is a kind of uh, what we call a moral panic uh, or aspects of it uh, related to pointing the finger at China. Uh, and, and we see it coming out of uh, the, the WHO, uh, they're tied into this in, in, in many ways. Uh, but, uh, but we also see it uh, out of the communications of the Canadian government and Canadian officials that they don't want to say that this is coming from China. I mean, everybody knows, but, but they don't wanna say the words China. Uh, And every time somebody suggests it, uh, then they would say that uh, somebody's racist is basically the woke kind of mentality uh, that that wants to protect things that need not be protected in many ways. Uh, We see it also from the Minister of Health uh, challenging journalists for uh, asking difficult questions about uh, Chinese data and, and that sort of stuff. And so it's, it's in a sense, perhaps the admiration of the prime minister and of course the minions uh, paying attention to what the prime minister admires. But, but there is also a, a kind of a wokeness about not being able to mention China because uh, immediately people think, and, and people think this stuff, that, that uh, Canadians are going to be attacking Chinese people or people of Chinese origin and, and, and that sort of stuff. So it, it's a kind of panic in some respects as well.
0: You know, and it's true that that is the um, bigotry of low expectations, to think that normal Canadians cannot separate the Chinese communist government from regular Chinese people. In fact, um, in my experience, especially in the lower mainland of BC, some of the largest critics of the communist state are new Canadians from China who are finally able to speak their mind about the issue. Um, I wanted, Barry, you mentioned the moral entrepreneurs in all of this. um, And that's how you describe these unelected health bureaucrats who seem to be making all these extra parliamentary rules and regulations for controlling our lives. How did they I guess they sort of seized power using health regulations, and now we are seeing, you know, people's lives being stomped on.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it, without uh, diminishing the importance that this has for act, the actual individuals, uh, where it can, you know, be genuine existential threats to their well-being. If you look at it from a, a social science point of view, uh, which you know that's what we do, uh, and it tends to be somewhat impersonal. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of novel um, what appearance on the political scene of people who otherwise, a year ago, we didn't know the names of the chief medical officer of health of Canada or of Alberta or of uh, her colleague out in, in, uh, in BC. Uh, now they're celebrities. Um, it doesn't change what they are. You know, there were bureaucrats a year ago, they're still bureaucrats. What's interesting from our way of looking at, at, uh, at politics is how they came to this position of prominence, and that's, a, that's actually a pretty uh, big question. A lot of it has to do with the, with the sense that, um, that not just Canadians, but modern people around the world have with respect to science. Uh, in this case, it happens to be medical science, or so-called medical science. Uh, in fact, the, the medical science is a lot more ambiguous than if you listen to these three bureaucrats. You'd ever, you'd ever imagine. Uh, you see the same thing in, in uh, climate change. Uh, the science there is just as ambiguous uh, as uh, as the official spokesman for, say, Environment Canada. Uh, say it is. Even in Environment Canada, there's, there are debates, but you'd never know it. Uh, if you listen to the government, so it becomes part of a pattern where uh, commonsensical Canadians are willing to give up their what they see in in before their very eyes <laughs> to listen to to a bunch of people who claim that they uh, have access to a, you know a magical world of science, uh, which is largely imaginary, uh, and and that's a very interesting problem where. Uh, where we give up our sense of reality that we can see right in front of our noses.
0: Marco, I want to ask you about um, some of these predictions and modeling. And I think it was fascinating that Barry pointed out the overlays between the climate change debate and then, you know, COVID, the COVID debate. Um, The modeling has been absolutely wrong from the very beginning and from the outside looking in, it feels like some of the modeling was produced to create fear so that the populace would be open to you know, heavy lockdowns and um, heavy restrictions on our civil liberties. How did they get the modeling so wrong?
1: There, there are several issues with the modeling, and, and uh, this is a really good question. Uh, on the one hand, part of what happens, of course, is that uh, the modeling is simply a representation of something, uh, a snapshot, a picture, and this picture is constructed largely from a whole set of assumptions, uh, bits and pieces, if you will, from 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 actual reality, and uh, and those bits and pieces are chosen, so they're driven by assumptions, they're driven by uh, a certain type of uh, belief in the people who are putting it, uh, who are putting it together, and so. Uh, the first problem really is that uh, the the models are not able to handle the complexity of reality and the complexity of all the human interactions and all the different things that must be taken into account in order to be able to have a glimpse of what could happen uh, with the expansion or the the uh, uh, of a viral a viral, um, uh, a, a, a viral a contagion, like like this one, that that's the first issue, the first issue that um, these kinds of statisticians often enough they tend to marry the reality that they have painted as though it was the real thing. But the second problem uh, is of course that there are competing models, and uh, that uh, we seem to have honed in on one and one alone. The uh, happens to be the scariest one. So. Uh, you were asking me about you know whether they're designed to create fear uh, m- maybe they are but certainly some are uh more prone to drive fear than others and, and those are the ones that had the largest uh prognosticated numbers of of death uh they happen to have been made by this guy named uh ferguson uh and uh in, in the and the thing about ferguson and his model is of course that not only was it wrong but it was wrong by several orders of magnitude and this was not the first time that his models were wrong he has a long string a long record of wrong models and modeling going back decades and so for the life of me i don't understand how a we picked that model and b then we shut down anyone else who had any kind of competing model that was perhaps less um, alarmist and, and maybe to some extent more reliable. So those issues, uh, and these of course, connects to what Barry was saying, that the people who picked these models are the medical officers that are advising the policymakers. And so if there is something to be said here, is that uh, the, the, the medical bureaucrats uh, honed in on the alarmist or the most alarmist models And those are the ones, or seem to have been the ones that they put in front of the policymakers. Just like climate
0: change. Just like climate change. Just like climate
1: change, right? And, And dismiss anything else. Dismiss any other possibility. Dismiss solar flares. Dismiss any kind of other actual reality.
0: Yeah. It's interesting how it it quickly turns into a doomsday scenario. You pick the scariest thing. That's the one we'll build policy around that and just discard everything else And it. It happens across the board. But there is a strong overlay between uh, climate change modeling and covid modeling.
1: And now we're connecting them this morning. Uh, One of the headlines I I read uh, said that, uh, you know, the cost of food this coming year is going to go up uh, 17, 20 percent because of covid 19 and climate change. So there you have the two boogeymen uh, coming together.
0: And I read that article too, and it didn't mention carbon taxes, adding anything to the cost of food. Isn't that no, no, fascinating?
1: No, no, no. <laughs> no. we, we all know that if we pay more taxes, the weather will, be, will improve. <laughs>
0: that's, that's right. And if we pay more taxes to Justin Trudeau, we'll have more money in our pockets, apparently. That's also how that works. And the budget will balance itself. Um, Barry, I wanted to ask you um, about some of the comparisons uh, to the Swedish approach versus the Canadian response here, because we are almost a year out from both companies or both countries handling uh, their pandemic response, and we're seeing um, drastically different um, results and consequences in both countries.
2: Yeah, I've, since Marco wrote that part, sure, and he and, yep. has and he has, uh, and he has uh, family members in Sweden. He, he can. Tell right. you, you a much better answer than I can. I, everything I know about Sweden, I learned
1: from Marco. Okay. Barry's <laughs> <laughs> in trouble already. If that's true. Um, the 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 comparison with with Sweden, uh, we 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 sort of decided. Um, we we originally started comparing what was happening here with a lot of different places. Uh, you know, we started looking at Japan. We looked at Taiwan. We looked at uh, a, a different countries. Uh, but what became actually clear is that. Uh, Taiwan isn't really like Canada uh, and you know South Korea isn't really like Canada or there are less points of comparison shall we say so so Sweden seemed to be a better model uh, and and of course Sweden is also run by a social democratic uh, uh, party uh, one would argue that uh, the current party in power is not really a liberal party uh, in the full sense of the term and so th- there is there's a, a great many points of comparison between uh, Sweden and and, uh, and Canada what is interesting about sweden is how they came to their decision-making power and it's it's a it, it is an interesting story actually um because uh the swedes several years ago uh, decided that, that they didn't really need emergency contingencies or or anything like that because they were at the time being governed by a kind of find a sky uh, government who thought that the collapse of the soviet union meant that sweden was no longer in any kind of danger uh from being invaded overrun and needing emergency plans then of course uh russia invades uh crimea and uh and they suddenly panic and 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 they go to the garbage can and pick out their last iteration of an emergency plan and they decide to revamp it by essentially involving the entire population uh, from, they they had hearings, they had consultations. So the short and the long story is that by the time they are done, every Swedish household has some kind of a pamphlet from uh, the government uh, about what's to be done in situations of emergency. They've all participated. By great coincidence, the plan was finished last December and this summer, they were supposed to hold kind of war games or uh, exercises to test it out. Well, they didn't need to do that because COVID-19 arrived and they were uh, all ready to go. But the point of all that story is to say that because they had contingencies, because they had thought about it, because uh, most of the population had been involved in the process, they were less pros to, prone to panic. I'm not saying that there were no Swedish people who, who panicked, there were, of course, and there were many who wanted the government to go into full lockdown. There are still uh, many Swedes who are wanting to lock down and, and they're panicking now and the government is pushing them uh, in, in that direction. But uh, Sweden stands out from all the other countries because uh, they had undergone this kind of pro- uh, progress, uh, excuse me, process, uh, and, uh, uh, and they were less, less prone to panic.
0: Now Barry, uh, maybe I'll ask you this question then. Um, I want to ask you about the effects on the culture because of the COVID regulations. You're a social scientist, so maybe you can help me with this. I'm concerned that there is this direction towards a snitch culture that we've really never had in this country and it's being reinforced with the crackdown on civil liberties. Uh, Is is that a threat to, to us? Is that becoming ingrained in our culture? And a second part of that question is, are we, is, is this whole thing becoming normalized? Are people sort of accepting that this is the way we're going to live from now on?
2: Uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting observation, uh, particularly with respect to the snitches. Uh, I mean, it, it uh, kind of reminds you of the Stasi uh, in in uh, in East Germany, uh, and I mean in in Calgary, we had the 311 line repurposed as a snitch line, and I thought, it, what is the matter with our mayor? I mean, he would be one of the first victims of uh, this the Stasi way of looking at at things. Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of resistance to that, um, and that should give us all a great deal of of. Uh, uh, confidence that we're we're simply not listening uh, to to our betters, uh, you know, for very good reason. Be, you know, because mostly I think because they're lying through their teeth and they know it. Uh, but this the snitch calls uh, or the snitch lines are uh, should be a concern to everybody. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that that most people still. Um, have an ability to make commonsensical judgments uh, on the basis of their of their own experiences, uh, and they're not going to snitch on their neighbors, uh, and they find a defensive that uh, say I, I, I mentioned the uh, city of Calgary re- repurposing uh, one of its uh, emergency lines as a snitch line, um, and on the other hand, there is a lot of or more or less organized. I don't know that there's some sort of mastermind behind it, but but with social media, you can you can create uh, uh, demonstrations pretty quickly against this uh, this kind of uh, government, um, what kind of tyrannical imposition of of normalcy, uh, and I think that's going to continue. Um, I think there's going to be a real crisis of legitimacy for all of these politicians who have. Uh, given up their uh, role as uh, as political leaders and uh, turned over the responsibilities uh, to people who have who have no capacity to act politically namely these these bureaucrats who are concerned about you know one tiny little part of, of a uh, current political crisis so it's going to be very interesting you know in the next six or eight months to see what happens to these characters
0: now, I guess this next question I'll, I'll throw to Mark, to Marco. Um, so what do you predict will happen in the next six months or a year? Are we going to see an end to the pandemic? Are we going to see, you know, some of these civil liberties impositions rolled back? Um, and what's going to become of our politicians, particularly the conservative ones, that I think we all kind of expected to take a, a less heavy handed approach uh to the pandemic Uh, what are your predictions for i guess the short term uh
1: for for the very short term i think it is pretty safe to say that the virus is not gonna go away um there we've created this fantasy that if we all lock ourselves in our houses uh the virus will disappear uh you know let's remember that at the very beginning uh, they managed to get an enormous amount of consent about the lockdown by saying, all we need to do is hide for a couple of weeks and we're gonna bend the curve, make sure that the uh, health system isn't overwhelmed. Uh, and you know, this arrived, they claimed suddenly, and so they needed, they needed to get ready. The reality is it's a virus. Viruses have been around for tens of thousands of years. Uh, they're not going to go away. And their job, really, is is to move around and, and get passed around. That's how they live. It, it's, it's fantasy that they're going to end. And it's fantasy that they're going to end with a lockdown. So we already, and the evidence is clear, right? This is not opinion. Uh, we had lockdowns in several countries. And when we barely started to reopening, uh, the virus A had not gone away and then it resumed uh, its rapid pace of advancement. So unless we shut down absolutely everything, and we're not gonna do that, even from Ottawa, um, the virus will continue to move at a certain pace. Uh, The second thing is that the vaccine may change that dynamic, but there is an expectation that the vaccine is kind of a little wand, uh, that we're gonna wave around and the virus is gonna stop. Uh, well, for starters, uh, the plan to have the vaccine roll out in Canada is months long. Uh, as far as I can tell, there is no plan. But but the glimpses that we've managed to uh, to get is that you know this could be June, maybe maybe even further before we vaccinate everybody who wants to be uh, vaccinated. So in the meantime, the virus will continue uh, will continue to move. There'll be renewed calls for locking down until everybody is is vaccinated and that's that's going to pose uh, problems now uh the second part of the question is you know what's what's going to happen to all these politicians well the public is always fickle uh and for as long as you can peddle this idea uh that you can come on 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 uh on, on camera all teary-eyed and say i'm gonna shut down your christmas but i'm the guy you need uh and uh you know all of a sudden the gringe comes disguised as a savior for as long as there is that they might be able to convince people that that's what they need because what what drives this thing is fear but you may have noticed that looking at the eyes because that's more or less only the the only thing you can see in people at costco or whatever uh, the fear in their eyes is not the same fear that there was in march in other words that this kind of stuff is kind of wearing thin to a certain extent. And so there is only so far you can push it. Uh, I doubt that a third lockdown uh, will be as easy as the one pushing for a second one. And there could be a third one because the natural logic of this is that there'd be more and more calls for another lockdown and no lockdown until the people who claim that they want zero Transmission becomes zero. Transmission that's not going to happen. There will never be zero transmission either. Uh, the virus that caused SARS is is still is still around. Uh, the virus that caused the the uh, swine flu uh, a few years ago is still around, and now is part of the cycle of the common flu uh, every every year. So this particular virus, as new as it we claim it is, isn't isn't going away. Um, I I would also predict to some extent that. Uh, the people who have fared badly for presumably not wanting to lock everything down and not wanting uh to bankrupt everybody uh, their fortunes will probably change once the fear uh starts to wane and and, and dissipate so it, there could be a kind of a flip uh and uh the people who continue to advocate for lockdowns may not know when to stop and that and that will be that will be their demise.
0: Oh, from your lips to God's ears, Marco <laughs> Barry. Uh, I want to give you a chance to uh, let people know where they can find your book and and see some of the other work that both of you are doing.
2: Um, well, the, probably the easiest place to get it's on Amazon. Uh, Marco told me that yesterday it was trending in a very positive direction, which is always you know that's always good news. I mean, not you know we're not going to get uh, be able to retire on our royalties, but. <laughs> But uh, to have to have this kind of information out there among um, Canadian and and there's some uh, American interest in it as well is you know that's always a good thing. So for anybody who's watching that, um, you know you might you might not agree with what we have to say, but uh, that's partly because it contradicts everything you read in the mainstream media. So you know go get it. It's and it's called COVID-19. Just. Go to Amazon. Do COVID nineteen. It'll come up right away, uh, and then you can you know you'll learn about moral uh, panics and all kinds of other stuff. You'll even learn about Hobbes.
0: Yeah, and it's impeccably footnoted, by the way. Uh, Marco, I know you, that you do some work um, with the Western Standard from time to time. They publish some of your op eds. Where else can they find you?
1: Um, I, I am. I, I wear many hats. Of course, one of them is I do. I do write uh, columns uh, that often appear in the Western Standard. Um, This book has been a a collaborative effort between Barry and I as individuals uh, but it's also been a collaborative effort between the Frontier Center for Public Policy uh, which is the sort of the official uh, publisher uh, and the Holtane Research Institute uh, which is sort of a a new research institute based here uh, in Alberta. um, Designed if you will to look at uh, problems for land locked territories. Uh, And, uh, as you probably know, there are only two landlocked uh, provinces uh, in Canada, so uh, it's pretty much uh, Western based. Um, Yes, um, uh, I I would renew Barry's Call. Uh, It's a a semi-interesting book, at at the very least, uh, and it fits very nicely in uh, Christmas stockings.
0: that's a great way to close the show thank you so much gentlemen for taking the time to talk with me today and best of luck in the book sales um because i think this is valuable information that everybody needs to have it it's a comprehensive look from all the aspects of the pandemic both the economic the medical and the social side um thanks again
1: thanks very much it's a pleasure
0: I read marco and barry's new book from cover to cover it's fact-filled remarkably well footnoted and easy to digest even for non-experts like me and more importantly it tells the other side of the story beyond the official narrative of our benevolent unelected overlord health bureaucrats and the politicians who empower them and the media who continue to enable them which means of course you probably won't hear much about Marco and Barry's book in the mainstream media. Again, the title of their new book is COVID-19, The Politics of Pandemic, Moral Panic, and it's available today on Amazon. Well, everyone, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see everybody back here at the same time, in the same place next week. And remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think.